from the beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show, our weekly Thursday night get-together to talk about what has happened in the world of sports the previous seven days. And it is a beautiful night for baseball. And we're going to get into a lot of baseball coming up in just a little bit. But first of all, you could join us on tonight's show simply by participating via the social media. You can contact us via email at dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. That's dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. Or you can send me a tweet at ohbbcohost. That's ohbbcohost. Well, some of the headlines going on this week in the world of sports. The Major League Baseball All-Star voting is out. The NBA and NHL playoffs are winding down. The Cleveland Cavaliers still have the first pick in the June 26th NBA draft, and they still need a head coach, along with the New York Knicks, Utah, Minnesota, and the Los Angeles Lakers. We're also going to hear from Tim McCarver and the MLB boys on the upcoming Major League Baseball draft. And for the first time in a long time, Roger Goodell is out of the headlines this week. All that and more on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But first... Oh, yeah. Do you think we could start out a show with anything other than the NFL and maybe even a Johnny Manziel story? Well, this is just the reason that I didn't want Johnny Manziel as part of the Cleveland Browns. The circus has come to town, folks. Barnum and Bailey may not be in existence any longer, but the circus has come to town in the form of Johnny Manziel. And what is it over this week? It's over the fact that Manziel actually had the audacity to go to Las Vegas during an off week on their off-season training programs. Now, as much as ESPN would just love to make fun of this story and say it means absolutely nothing, I guess I've got to ask them this question. Then why do you keep reporting on it? They're the ones that started it. They're the ones that are perpetuating it. They hate it so much. Quit talking about it. It'd be very simple for them to just stop it. Well, because they're not, everybody else has got to talk about it. But I'm really not interested in talking about the Vegas trip. Manziel said Wednesday he's dedicated to the Cleveland Browns. He's dedicated to making himself a great quarterback. And he doesn't intend to stop being a young quarterback who morphed into Johnny Football and a phenomenon during his college football days. Uh, I've learned to accept that for a while now. So I, I knew whether it was um, going anywhere that, that a picture was going to be taken of me and um, that somebody was going to see me, whether it was going back home or going to, to anywhere or, or staying here. And maybe it would have been a less of a story somewhere else, but um, still I'm very surprised it is a story. But I knew, I knew going into it that um, I can't go anywhere without people knowing that I'm there or, or tweeting or doing whatever that I'm there. So um, I'm used to it by now. And fair or unfair... Whatever it may be, that's, that's my life. I think a bigger story is, how did the 21-year-old Manziel get hooked up with Rob Gronkowski of the New England Patriots in Las Vegas and managed to hang out poolside with Gronkowski? I think that's a better story than Manziel just hopping a flight out of Cleveland and heading to Las Vegas over the weekend. Now, with Gronkowski, he attended a UFC fight. Fair enough. He enjoyed the nightlife. 
fair enough. And he was filled spraying champagne on some of the patrons at a Sin City hotspot. But to Johnny, he is used to all this spotlight. I mean, I'm just, I'm just really used to it. Um, it's been life for, for so long now. Um, I, I really wouldn't know what it would be like any other way. I can't really think um, back to the days of, of how it was when I didn't have people tweeting or taking pictures of wherever I was. And I don't mean that in a, in a way to, to have a big head or anything like that. It's just, it's just how things are. For some reason, wherever I go, people want to take pictures, and they think I'm doing something wild when I'm just living a normal life. Manziel's aware of the criticism about his decision to leave town. Many feel that he's not working hard enough, that he should stay home and study the playbook. Well, for crying out loud, folks, none of the other football players stuck around town. They went to either South Beach or they went to Chicago, they went to New York, or they went home, which is where they deserve to go. After all, Manziel is not even the Browns' starting quarterback, and there's no guarantee that he's even going to beat out Brian Hoyer in training camp. So Manziel right now is only concerned about what his teammates and coaches think and trying to win the starting quarterback job. Just just plugging in whenever, whatever they really ask me to to go, um, whatever group it is. I mean, I don't I don't put any stock to that or um, never too high or never too low on that. So I'm just trying to learn every day, learning from the mistakes that I do make. I mean, I've been here a couple of weeks, um, had five or six practices, and um, I don't have all, all of it figured out, and I'm still learning as the days go on. So... Um, I feel like them putting me in some of those situations is just there's another speed level there. And I honestly don't understand what the big hullabaloo is about. If this kid wants to go to Las Vegas, he's got the money, can go to Vegas, go. It's no big deal. From what I understand from all the players, all the coaches, Manziel has been a model rookie player for this franchise. And matter of fact, Brown's first-year coach Mike Pettin said Manziel, who took some of the stats with Cleveland's first-team offense yesterday told him about his plans to go to Vegas, and Pettin said, go ahead, have a good time, enjoy yourself. The team didn't have any issues with the trip. The only people that seem to have a problem with this trip is ESPN and the local media, and even they're tiring of this story. I am totally tired of it. Let Johnny Manziel be a rookie football player some sad news out of the NFL this week. From the NFL depths to a renaissance that saw his franchise hoist the Lombardi Trophy for the first and only time, Malcolm Glazier lived it all as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers owner. In eight short years after he bought the team for $192 million on January 16, 1995, he witnessed the Buccaneers escape a bumbling tradition and become the league's best. That will be one of the lasting memories of Glazier, who died yesterday morning. He leaves behind his wife, Linda, six kids, and 14 grandkids. He was 85 years old. Glazier was many things. An NFL ambassador as a member of the league's finance committee, a prominent regional face as an instrumental figure in Tampa, receiving the Super Bowl twice during his Bucks ownership in 2001 and 2009, and a local humanitarian as evidenced by the 1999 launch of the Glazier Family Foundation, which is dedicated to assisting charitable and educational causes in the Tampa Bay region. His impact on the Buccaneers, though, is inescapable. They reached levels not seen before his ownership. Key developments, including moving from Houlihan Stadium into Raymond James Stadium for the 1998 season, 
earning seven playoff berths plus five postseason victories and capturing the Super Bowl. They had three playoff appearances in the 19 seasons before he purchased the team. Beyond Tampa, there was international flavor to Glazier's interest. He purchased Manchester United in 2005 for $1.47 billion, a development that was controversial among fans of the storied soccer franchise at the time. But since then, the club has won five Premier League titles in 2007, 2008, 2009, 2011, and 2013, and a Champions League crown in 2008. Tampa Bay Buccaneers owner Malcolm Glazier, dead at the age of 85. Also in the NFL this week, Sean Lee certainly is a playmaker for the Dallas Cowboys. He has 11 interceptions and two forced fumbles in his four-year career and was credited with 99 tackles in only 11 games last year. It's Lee's excellent instincts that put him in a position to make such plays. And on Tuesday, however, the Dallas Cowboys linebackers' instincts were probably too good. During the team's first OTA session, he got out in front of a screen pass and tried to plant while taking on rookie offensive lineman Zach Martin. Lee's right leg gave out, and then so did his left, just as Martin was trying to engage him. Lee tore his left ACL and is likely to miss the entire 2014 season. At first glance, it might seem that Martin plowed Lee and caused the injury, but subsequent viewings of the video show Lee's knee gave out before Martin contacted him. In other words, it appears to be another extremely unfortunate season-ending injury before the summer even arrives. And the NFL training camps will not even get into place for another two months. And already, an all-pro linebacker is out for the Dallas Cowboys. History was made last Memorial Day weekend in Major League Baseball. And believe it or not, it happened with the L.A. Dodgers, and it happened in the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, where Josh Beckett of the Los Angeles Dodgers no-hit the Philadelphia Phillies. Now on three and two to Upley. Here's the pitch from Beckett. Call straight three and a no-hitter. Josh Beckett. For the 21st time in Dodger history, a no-hitter. The first is Hideo Nomo in 1996. History in Philadelphia on Memorial Day weekend. Beckett capped his remarkable comeback from risky surgery last summer, throwing his first career no-hitter in the Dodgers' 6-0 victory over the Phillies on Sunday at Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. It was also the first no-no of the baseball season. Beckett walked three, but after a leadoff walk in the second inning, he retired 23 consecutive Phillies before walking Jimmy Rollins with two outs in the ninth. He caught Chase Utley looking at a fastball on a 3-2 pitch for the game's final out. And it wasn't like the 34-year-old right-hander was blowing him by everyone. He only struck out six, but he was around the plate, and his curveball, always a strong pitch for him, is now becoming his main weapon. Still, Beckett was surprised 
and how well he was doing. I kind of joked about this, but I was really just waiting for them to get a hit. You know, that's such a good lineup, and, you know, you got all-stars, MVPs, all kinds of things. Um, I don't think I was too nervous. You know, even in the ninth inning, I felt like I, you know, I, I, I just kept pitching. I kept throwing my, you know, pitches I want to throw in the game plan. Um, you know, I, I, I walked Jimmy Jimmy Rollins. I fell behind him, and I was like, you know what? I have a no-hitter, not a perfect game. So, you know, if, if I throw him a 3-1 curveball, a 3-2 curveball, uh, it's not that big a deal if it ends up being a ball. I was joking about it because I, I really didn't think there was any chance that it would actually happen. Uh, so I was walking up and down the dugout joking about it the whole time. Um, you know, I, I remember having a, a conversation with Don Mattingly about it. I had a conversation with Grinky about it. Um, you know, it, I think everybody was just in disbelief on it. Yeah, it was rather funny to watch him go up and down the dugouts and talk to all the players and about him throwing a no-hitter. He just threw history and possibly uh, just jinxing himself right out the window. He talked to everybody about it. The last no-hitter was pitched by the Miami Marlins' Henderson Alvarez against the Detroit Tigers on the final day of the 2013 regular season. That was the last no-hitter. Well, now Josh Beckett, he owns the latest no-hitter in Major League Baseball history. Now I move on to a story that really disappoints me. It appears Ryan Braun, by all you fans, is completely forgiven on what he did. The once-tarnished Braun, and I don't say once-tarnished, I don't say two-times-tarnished, I say three-times-tarnished on this guy for lying not once, not twice, but also getting just a regular Joe Blow worker at FedEx fired because of his lies. Braun is coming off a suspension as the result of the biogenesis scandal and hasn't seen his popularity dip too badly in the wake of his punishment. The Brewers outfielder and former National League MVP is in line for a starting spot for the National League's All-Star team. And there are a few other surprises elsewhere in the early voting, results of which were revealed on Wednesday, the most notably the top vote-getter in the outfield. Most of the infield results to date won't shock anyone. The Cardinals' Yadier Molina, who has also made the last five All-Star teams, has a comfortable lead of more than 200,000 votes on the Giants' Buster only, a Buster Posey, I should say. The same is true at first base, where the Dodgers' Adrian Gonzalez is ahead of the likes of Freddie Freeman. However, Gonzalez's advantage over Freeman is a mere 41,000 votes and likely a result of that brilliant first month of play for Gonzalez. The selections at second base and shortstop make much more sense, the Phillies' Chase Utley and the Rockies' Troy Tudelowinski have commanding and deserved leads. Third base is where things start to get strange. Colorado's Nolan Orenando has the lead at that position, thanks in part to his red-hard start of the season and the 28-game hitting streak that propelled him into the public eye. Then there's the National League outfield, which boasts a starter no one saw coming. Charlie Blackman. Yeah, that... Charlie Blackman. Who is he? He's the Colorado Rockies outfielder, and he's one of three projected starters, along with Braun and the Pirates' Andrew McCutcheon. He's also the third leading vote-getter on the ballot. In the American League, Mike Trout is the leading vote-getter with over 764,000 votes. Only two other players, Blue Jays outfielder Jose Bautista 
and Yankees shortstop Derek Jeter have more than 600,000 votes. Trout, the rookie of the year in 2012 and two-time runner-up for the AL's Most Valuable Player Award before his 23rd birthday, would be playing in his third consecutive All-Star game. And Jeter, retiring at the close of this year, would be headed to the Midsummer Classic for the 14th time. Two Tigers, first baseman Miguel Cabrera and second baseman Ian Kinsler, lead the balloting at their positions. And the Yankees are the only other American League team with two players currently in position to start the July 15th game at Target Field in Minneapolis. Jacoby Ellsbury is third in balloting among outfielders, narrowly ahead of teammate Carlos Beltran in fourth. Oakland's Josh Donaldson leads all players to third base, and injured Baltimore catcher Matt Wieters is at the top of the list for American League catchers. New York's Brian McCann is second in votes among backstops, which might be good enough to make him the starter if Wieters doesn't return in time. And Boston's David Ortiz, an all-star staple, is headed for the designated hitter spot. Fans can still cast their votes for starters at MLB.com and all 30 club sites, online or on a mobile device, using the 2014 All-Star Game MLB ballot sponsored by Experian until Thursday, July 3rd at 11.59 p.m. Very special ceremony going on this week when the St. Louis Cardinals hosted the New York Yankees for only the second time in the last 15 years at Bush Stadium. The Cardinals were celebrating the 1964 World Series triumph, the 50th anniversary of that triumph, over the New York Yankees, four games to three. One of the players on that team is former ABC, CBS, and Fox announcer Tim McCarver. And he told the Major League Baseball Network earlier this week that he's very pleased to be back in St. Louis and celebrating that World Series championship club. I'll tell you, the emotions have run uh, have run very high this week in St. Louis with the introduction of the of the 1964 team, the 50th anniversary on uh, on Monday against the Yankees. Uh, it's uh, it's just been a fabulous week of of baseball and baseball memories. A lot of people remember McCarver as an announcer, but they don't remember him as an outstanding catcher for the Cardinals and also the Philadelphia Phillies. But in that World Series. With the series tied two games apiece, in Game 5, McCarver hit a home run in the top of the 10th inning to help win that Game 5 and propel the Cardinals to a seven-game triumph over the Yankees. And McCarver remembers that homer. The thing I remember about that, uh, about that home run more than it, as much as it being a game winner and all that and us going up three games to two against uh, the mighty Yankees was that Mickey Mantle was playing right field throughout the series. Roger Maris had moved to center. Mickey was in, in right. And the one thing I remember as much as anything was the fact that Mantle had turned and was going after the ball. And, and as I hit first base, I looked out there, and number seven uh, had his back to me in home plate uh, trying to make an effort. I, I think the ball went about three or four rows up. Uh, uh, but it's not how far; it's whether it goes over that first fence or not. <laughs> do remember, I do remember Mickey, and uh, and obviously we became friends a, a lot later when I was doing uh, New York games, and for a, for a very short time he was doing Yankee games uh, in New York City. But that was quite that was quite a thrill playing against that ball club at a, at a young age. 
the Cardinals were one of the dominant teams in the 1960s then. They could have won four World Series in that decade. They did win in 1964, and they won again in 1967, and almost won in 1968 when they had a three-games-to-one lead over the Detroit Tigers. That Cardinal team has tremendous history with a lot of great players on it, as McCarver remembers. Uh, Orlando Cepeda, uh, hands down, the most valuable player in 1967. And uh, interestingly, to, to... uh, to give you an idea of how Musial had the Midas touch, he was a general manager in baseball one year, 1967, and we won the world championship. <laughs> he figured, hey, this isn't that tough. He comes to him for one year, spelling Bob Housem, who went to Cincinnati and built the big red machine, and and uh, then Bing Devine returned in 1968. But I was I was a little disappointed in having that team disassembled so early. I mean, um, you know, after the '69 uh, season, uh, of course, Ted Simmons was coming to the Cardinals, and, and he was a great hitter. Uh, but I was traded along with Kurt Flood to Philadelphia, and we've often thought, and Bob Gibson and I, in particular, have talked about uh, the fact that it would have been interesting for us to be together one more year in 1970. Uh, just to show that 1969 was a fluke. But the way baseball goes, you know, if you don't produce, uh, they break up the ball club, and that's what happened to the Cardinals after the 69 season. Well, as McCarver said, he and Kurt Flood were traded to the Phillies in 1969, and that ended the Cardinal dynasty. Now, one of the reasons that many thought Kurt Flood was traded was because he was the one that tested the antitrust clause for ball players, basically becoming a free agent. He was the first player to do that. But another reason also had more to do with what he did on the field. Flood, you see, in Game 7 of that 68 World Series against the Detroit Tigers, misplayed a routine fly ball of Jim Northrup into a triple, and the Cardinals ended up losing that ball game. And McCarver remembers talking to Bob Gibson about that trade. Uh, on the telecast on Monday, we had Bob Gibson on for two innings. And uh, and I was talking to him about the MVP in 1964. And uh, Sport Magazine used to give a Corvette uh, to the MVP of the World Series. I don't know when that ended. But, it, uh, but Gibson got a Corvette in 1967. He got a Corvette in 19, uh, uh, 1964. Then 67, and he, he said, and it was very funny the way he said it. He said, I would have gotten another one, too, in 1968 had Flood not, not made that misstep. And, and he would have. And he would have if we win that game. But it was uh, not to be. And Lowell pitched uh, just great ball, and we only scored one run against him, and Bob lost 4-1. That 68 season was when Mickey Lowell won three games in the World Series compared to only one for Denny McLean, and that was the year Denny McLean had won 31 games during the regular season. Well, another ceremony happened in St. Louis this week, other than that 64 team that McCarver talks about, and it was the fact that Derek Jeter was making his final return to St. Louis this week. As you know, he's retiring at the end of the season, and McCarver got to see it and discusses it in person. So touched. I watched the game in Chicago on Sunday. The uh, Yankees and and the White Sox. The Yankees won that game, 
But more importantly, uh, Jeter uh, received a, a standing ovation in front of 40,000 fans in Chicago uh, because that was his last time there. What, a, what an elegant performer for such a long period of time. And, and so many things run through your mind. I mean, you know, Joe Buck and I, that was our first World Series back in 1996, and it was Derek Jeter's first World Series, our first World Series together on Fox, and it was Derek's first World Series. And um, what a, what a – I mean, there's so many things and so many descriptions of the elegance of Derek Jeter, the way he carries himself, the way he plays the game, uh, the way he's such a competitor, his – uh, is rising to the occasion in big moments. The the little flip to Posada back in the 2001 uh, LDS against the Athletics, uh, the home run uh, in 2001 in the World Series to win it, uh, the dramatic games uh, against the Arizona Diamondbacks in New York, games four and five in particular, uh, and just all of the heroic things that he's done. And uh, but uh, but nothing that he does. Uh, overshadows his elegance as a man and his elegance as a player. Well, baseball truly is losing a great in Derek Jeter. And Tim McCarver, although I wasn't enamored with his announcing style, he retired after last year's World Series. He is no longer with Fox. And, of course, he was an outstanding backstop for the St. Louis Cardinals and the Philadelphia Phillies. But are there any other Derek Jeters or Tim McCarvers in this year's amateur draft for Major League Baseball? Well, that's coming up next Thursday night, June 5th, and it will be held at the Major League Baseball Network Studio 42 in Secaucus, New Jersey. It was announced today. There will be seven amateur players scheduled to attend the Major League Baseball 2014 draft show next Thursday night. Those players are Michael Chavis, Jacob Gatewood, Nick Gordon, High school outfielders Monty Harrison and Derek Hill, and high school pitchers Grant Holmes and Cody Medeiros. The Major League Baseball crew goes over the draft, and who is at the top of the list for next week's draft? Brian Kenny, Joel Sherman, and Al Leiter. Rob Nyer of Fox Sports will be back with us. Right now joining us is Jim Callis of MLB.com, an expert on the draft. Let's talk about at the very top. Is there superstar talent at the top, and who goes number one? There are some very good players, but there's no consensus number one pick right now. Coming into the year, the feeling was that Carlos Rodon, the lefty from NC State, was, was the front runner by far, maybe as much as anybody had been since Steven Strasburg and David Price. He's had a good, not great season. He's come back to the pack a little bit. I think the Astros at this point, they're focusing on him. He's in the mix. I think they're focusing on another lefty, Brady Aiken, who's a high school kid from the San Diego area. And I think they're also looking at another San Diego high school prospect, Alex Jackson, who's a catcher, outfielder. Could probably stay a catcher, but the bat's so good, you probably move him to right field like you did with, with Bryce Harper and Will Myers. Jim, uh, on the subject, you mentioned some pitchers you think will go at the top. There were probably moments during this where people thought Jeff Hoffman or Eric Fetty would go very, very high in this draft. They're Tommy John guys. Is Tommy John now something where teams will say, hey, they got it out of the way. We know most pitchers are going to need it, or 35% are going to need it. It's out of the way. We're willing to draft them in the first round anyway, let them go through their rehab because we think they're talented guys. Yeah, yeah I think you could definitely, I mean, and that's been going on for a while. I mean, Nick Adenhart, you know, the late Nick Adenhart had Tommy John surgery in the, in the spring of his draft year, and he didn't go in the first round, but he got a, a very sizable bonus. 
And I think, you know, Hoffman, you're right, was in the mix to go number one. Fetty had pitched his way into the top ten. At least if you take these guys, you know exactly what you're dealing with. You're not speculating, hey, is something wrong? What's going on? Is he going to need the surgery? You know, the downside, of course, is these guys aren't going to be back in the mound until next year, aren't going to be really full bore until 2016. Uh, you know, but, but you know, the, the success rate of coming back from Tommy John is pretty good. And you look at it as an opportunity to maybe buy low on a guy who still has a high ceiling. A lot of it's going to come down to, and this still really hasn't been determined yet, is what the signability is going to be on these guys. You know, Jeff Hoffman had a chance to go at the top of the draft. He was looking at a probably bonus in the 4 or $5 million range. If he's still looking for something close to that, let's say he wants $3 million, his market's a lot different than, let's say, if he's going to sign for $2 million, million and a half. So that, that still remains to be seen, but I still think Jeff Hoffman probably goes in the upper half of the first round somewhere, and I think Eric Fetty probably factors into the back half of the first round somewhere. I was able to uh, watch several of these pitchers uh, in breakdown form, and uh, I really like Tyler Beatty. I, I see some Sonny Gray comparison, so I'm going to throw this out there. Who is Which club needs the quickest pitcher to get to the big leagues? <laughs> I see him as a Sonny Gray. I think he's polished. What do you think? Which club, and what do you feel about his upside and how quickly will he get to the big leagues? Well, the team I hear the most that's looking for a polished guy that can get there quick, and it's generally a team where, where the team's you know, on the downturn is, is Philadelphia. I, I think there's a lot of feeling that Philadelphia is definitely taking a college player and probably college pitcher. What yeah, pick do they have? They have seven. They pick at seven. You know, Beatty's a real interesting guy for a couple of reasons. One, he was a first-round pick out of high school. He's going to be a first-round pick this year. There's only 18 guys who've ever pulled that off. He'll be the 18th. The other thing is, while he shows you mid-90s fastball, he can show you a good curveball, he can show you a good changeup, it's, it's a big league body, mm -hmm. he, he's inconsistent with the control and command. He, he, he's up and down, and teams are really frustrated at trying to figure out, you know, is he ever going to lock down that command? I mean, as a sophomore, he's one of three finalists for the Golden Spikes Award. He, he led the NCAA in, in Brian's favorite stat wins, and he hasn't been as consistent <laughs> this year. I didn't get a reaction. <laughs> and he hasn't been as consistent this year. So he's a guy who could go in the top ten. I also think his stock is dropping a little bit right now, and it wouldn't surprise me if he went closer to 20 than he did to 10. It's, guys are all over the place on him because you can go see him good and you can go see him bad. And at the SEC tournament last week, it was not one of his better outings when everybody was going in to get one more big look before you set your draft board. So he'll be interesting to watch because he could kind of go anywhere in the first round right now. He was being sarcastic. Anybody, before we go, anybody uh, stock rising that's getting people's attention right now? I, I think there's two guys whose stock is rising as much as anybody, Brian. You have Derek Hill, who's a high school outfielder from California. His, the interesting thing is his dad, Orsino Hill, got to AAA and scouts for the Dodgers, has his son in his area. Yeah. I don't think he necessarily gets them at 22, but of all the athletic high school players in the draft, Hill is the best bet to hit. He, you know, I think he's going to be a gold glove caliber center fielder and can really run. And then the other guy is Nick Howard who's on a loaded University of Virginia team, who's a closer this year. I think he's going to go in the first round. He could go. He might go ahead of Beatty. His stock's been on the rise. His team's looked for college pitchers with the guys getting hurt. And he's a guy who could get drafted. He's 98, mid-80 slider, but he also has experience starting. So somebody might take him and maybe do a Chris Sale deal where you try to get him to the bullpen maybe even this year, help your big league club a little bit, and then next year you try to develop sure. him into a starter. Don't forget that draft is coming up next Thursday night, June 5th. And we'll keep you abreast of what happens next Thursday night on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Wrapping up Major League Baseball this week, let's go to the standings. And these are through this afternoon. And here's a look at what's happening in Major League Baseball. First of all, in the National League, let's take a look at the National League East, where the Atlanta Braves are a half a game above the Miami Marlins. Atlanta 28-24, Miami 28-25. and And then comes Washington in third place. Three games behind at 25 and 27. In the National League Central, the Milwaukee Brewers are still holding on to first place in that division with a 32 and 22 mark. Two and a half games above 
the St. Louis Cardinals at 29 and 24, and the Cincinnati Reds are seven and a half games back at 23 and 28, but only a half a game above the Pittsburgh Pirates, the Pirates in fourth place. And in the National League West, it's the San Francisco Giants with the best record in the National League at 34 and 19, five and a half games up on the Los Angeles Dodgers at 29 and 25, six over Colorado at 28 and 25, and ten and a half over the San Diego Padres at 24 and 30. Let's look at the American League. We're out in the American League East. The Toronto Blue Jays, who have won nine in a row, are 32 and 22, and they lead the East by three games over the New York Yankees. Baltimore is in third place in that division, four and a half back at 26 and 25. In the American League Central, it's the Detroit Tigers at 29 and 20, but they have lost eight of their last ten leading the division by four games over the Chicago White Sox, who have won three in a row. Minnesota 24-27, and 27, six games back. Kansas City six and a half behind the Tigers. And Cleveland, mired in last place, seven and a half games back. Finally, in the American League's Western Division, here's a look at what's happening out there, where you've got Oakland leading the division by two and a half games at 32-21 and 21, over the Los Angeles Angels, 29-23. and 23. Texas, is in third place, 28 and 26, four and a half games back, and they have won two in a row since Prince Fielder underwent neck surgery, which has sidelined him for the rest of this season. Then comes Seattle in fourth place, five and a half games back, and the Houston Astros, with the worst record in the American League at 22 and 32, are ten and a half games behind the Oakland Athletics. And that's a look at Major League Baseball for this Thursday night. Well, the NBA playoffs are winding down to a close. The Eastern and Western Conference Finals are both getting into the final couple of games over the next few nights. The San Antonio Spurs rolled to the best regular season record in the NBA. Everybody knows that by now. Then they put on a clinic against Dallas in Game 7 of their first-round series and then toyed with a good Portland team in the conference semis. But now we are seeing what happens when the Spurs, old and proud, run into a younger Oklahoma City team with a dominating Russell Westbrook, the reigning MVP Kevin Durant, and Serge Ibaka who wasn't even supposed to be here after he reportedly tore a calf muscle in his team's closeout win over the Clippers in the conference semis. When the Thunder is whole, it is bigger, longer, and more athletic than San Antonio. And it is better unless the Spurs can use their home court advantage to their advantage. And they're going to try to do that tonight in about an hour in Game 5. But this is nothing new to Spurs coach Greg Popovich, who came into this series knowing the Thunder are more athletic than his squad is. Uh, in general, we, we've got to uh, play with the same determination uh, that they did in Oklahoma City. You know, they played like a desperate team, and uh, we did not match that. Uh, we, you know, that's the bottom line as far as the approach to the game. Uh, we were. We're behind in that regard, and that has to change. It doesn't matter what we do tactically uh, if we don't up that determination, you know, that attitude, that persistent, uh, aggressive 
ugly, hard-nosed attitude. And I think that was embodied in them in Russell Westbrook. Uh, you know, he played like it was his last game. Uh, and that's the way it's got to be. Uh, there's no, no way we can match their athleticism. Uh, so, you know, we've got to play smart and take advantage of a few situations uh, because that's, that athletic part's not going to be uh, matched. So uh, it's important for us to have a, a greater degree, a sense of place, a sense of where we are and what kind of an opportunity we have here. Did you hear Popovich in the in-game interview the other night when he took Ginobili out of the game with a minor injury, and he was asked during the third and four, the in-between interview, the third and fourth quarter, what is the prognosis for Ginobili? And he said he'll be out for the rest of the series. Well, that was just a dig at Sergei Ibaka being back in the lineup. And the Thunder, with Ibaka in the lineup, has won seven straight games over the Spurs and 12 of its last 14. No one dominates San Antonio the way the Thunder does when it has its rim protector on the floor, not even Miami. The Thunder forces the Spurs to play more slowly, and old and slow isn't the way to go when superior athletes such as Westbrook are on the other team. But the Thunder have to take advantage of this, and they have to do it tonight in San Antonio. And Coach Scott Brooks says they can. We were playing better. We played well at home. Uh, we knew that we had to had to do that uh, in order to win game three and game four. Um, but we have to be able to take it on the road with us. The Spurs will be a smarter team tonight, of course, because they're at home. Game five is around nine o'clock this evening. In the meantime, game six of the Eastern Conference Finals will be tomorrow night. Miami is going home and leads the best of seven series three games to two over Indiana. Indiana has proven they are no match for the Heat in the East. They are slow, they have no killer instinct, and they have no offensive flow whatsoever. And if they have to succumb to Lance Stevenson tactics like he did last night to LeBron when he blew in his ear... Indiana simply has no chance at winning this series. Well, onward to some NBA news, and where would you be in the NBA news without talking about Donald Sterling? Sterling responded forcefully Tuesday to the NBA's charges to terminate his ownership while his estranged wife, Shelley, continued to move quickly to sell the team by the end of this week. Donald Sterling's lawyer, Max Blecker, told ESPN on Tuesday that his client is going to fight to the bloody end and has effectively disavowed the agreement he reached with his wife last week that would allow her to negotiate the sale of the team. Shelly Sterling and her advisors were undeterred by Donald Sterling's position and continued to move swiftly to sell the team, setting a deadline of yesterday morning for the first round of bidding on the franchise, sources told ESPN. Tony Luckman, an NBA reporter for CBS Sports, explains what Sterling is doing. I think he changes every single day, which, which whatever the wind blows, he's going to feel this way, and then the next day he's going to change his mind. I think it's embarrassing. I think it's time for him to go away. And I think he's been knocked around so much, he finally came up for air. Whatever loons are on his team or in his camp, he meets with them, and he says, you know what, I'm not going down. I'm going to fight this to the very end and just drag it out. I think he is going to fight to the very end. I don't think Sterling is going to give up. Now, Pierce O'Donnell, an attorney for Shelley Sterling, 
issued a statement Tuesday stating that his client had a written agreement with her husband to sell the team, and she and the NBA are working cooperatively on the transaction. Shelly Sterling has received offers up until this afternoon. Now it's expected that a second round of bidding will take place this weekend with a winning bid decided upon by Monday. Well, the Cleveland Cavaliers will visit with former Kansas center Joel Embiid sometime in the coming weeks and conduct a physical. Embiid will not visit another team until the Cavaliers are given a chance to determine if they will select Embiid with the top pick in the NBA draft on June 26th. Embiid set out the last six games of Kansas' season due to a stress fracture in his back, missing the Big 12 and NCAA tournaments. Embiid worked out for the NBA personnel last week in Los Angeles, and CBS Sports draft guru Zach Harper says even with the back problems, Embiid is the consensus number one pick. He has a back issue, and we don't know the extent of it, and that is, that's a problem. Uh, it's a problem yeah. to have a, a seven-foot guy with a bad back. But if it's not that big of a deal, he's clearly the best prospect. And I love Andrew Wiggins, love Jabari Parker, love all those guys. But Embiid is a seven-foot player, only played basketball a few years, already incredibly skilled, a great defender, great rebounder, uh, great passer. Like, he can literally do it all as a big man. And, you know, the Cavs, they're very, they're very trusting with their medical team. The seven-foot Cameroon native has been projected as the likely top choice throughout the season. That's why Embiid won't visit with Milwaukee or Philadelphia, which have the next two picks, until the Cavaliers have a chance to review his case for number one. It is believed if Embiid is passed on by the Cavs, he will be selected by Milwaukee. So, who then would Philadelphia take at number three? Again, we turn to Zach Harper. He's such a good scorer, and that, you know the the knock against him was bad bad defender. You know was a little out of shape at Duke. wasn't you know wasn't this bowling over prospect that we saw early in the season. He kind of he kind of you know lessened his impact a little bit. But he was playing center in, at Duke. He's not going to be a center in the NBA. He's going to get into shape. He'll get a personal chef. He'll be trained. He'll be trained in an NBA environment. He's going to drop weight. He's going to be explosive. He's a great scorer. Uh, and this is the, this is what they need. You have a you have a front court of Nerlens Noel, Thad Young, assuming they keep him, Jabari Parker. You can really do some damage with that front court and build towards the future. Embiid's representatives and the Cavs are working toward finding an appropriate date, time, and even perhaps a place con to conduct their interview and physical. Cleveland still could deal the number one pick, and of course, everyone's talking about the possibility of Cleveland making a trade with. Minnesota to get Kevin Love. Now, I would love to have Kevin Love. There's no doubt about it. Would I trade the number one pick for Kevin Love without Love in return signing a long-term agreement with the Cavaliers? Absolutely not. And I think you're nuts to even think about doing something like that. To allow Love to come into the Cavaliers organization for one year and have one season to try to change his mind to go to L.A. or wherever he wants to go is not the right thing for the Cavaliers to do with this number one pick. In my mind, you go with Wiggins or Jabari Parker. But what will the Cavaliers do? That is another question. Another trade that I would even consider making is the number one pick to Philadelphia for number three and number ten. You could do something like that. Maybe even throw in... Deion Waiters into the deal and make a trade like that. Of course, a lot is going to hinge upon 
who the Cavaliers are going to hire as their head coach. And it is believed that today the Cavaliers interviewed Chicago Bulls assistant Adrian Griffin for their head coaching vacancy. He is believed to be the first coach to actually interview for the spot. Los Angeles Clippers assistant Tyrone Liu will interview later this week, followed by former Memphis coach Lionel Hollins. The Cavs also asked permission to speak to Clippers associate head coach Alvin Gentry, but it's unclear if an interview with him has been scheduled. And after weeks of rumors and reaching out to gauge interest, the Cavaliers appear to be getting closer to finding a replacement for Mike Brown, who was fired on May 12th. Now in Utah, it appears Griffin and Gentry are on the Jazz list to be their head coach, but nothing appears to be on the horizon with them. Out in Los Angeles, it's another day, another new name for the Lakers coaching search. This time, it's former player and assistant coach Kurt Rambis, who served as the team's interim head coach during the lockout-shortened 1998-99 season, and he met with the Los Angeles hierarchy to talk about the team's open head coaching position. L.A. has now interviewed three potential head coaches, Rambis, Byron Scott, and Mike Dunleavy, and plans to interview Alvin Gentry and Lionel Hollins are contemplated for later this week. All total, the team reportedly plans to talk to at least 10 candidates, possibly including Oklahoma City guard Derek Fisher, whose name has also come up in connection with the Knicks' open head coaching job. The Lakers would have to wait to talk to Fisher until after the Thunder's playoff run is over. Chris McGee, also from CBS Sports, talks about what the Lakers are doing. I am glad that they are taking their time. They made mistakes with Mike Brown. They fell in love with him in the interview, the defense, the hard work. They thought Mike D'Antoni could come and rekindle what he had in Phoenix with Steve Nash. That didn't happen. Take your time. Jim, they have three guys under contract. Kobe Bryant, the other guy's 40 years old, and Steve Nash, and Sacre. Take your time. Talk to a lot of different candidates. See what route you want to go. See what kind of players you're going to have. If you go a veteran guy, you go with Byron Scott because he knows the purple and gold. He knows the family. He's got a great relationship with Kobe Bryant, and he's proven. Remember this. Quinn Schneider. Our relationship with Mitch Kupchak and with Kobe Bryant, young guy, knows those college kids, does a good job with players. Former Los Angeles Clippers and Chicago Bulls coach Vinny Del Negro has also emerged as a serious candidate for the Minnesota Timberwolves vacancy, according to NBA coaching sources. Sources also told ESPN.com on Thursday that Del Negro who supposedly is being considered for the Cleveland Cavaliers job, according to ESPN, but nobody here in Cleveland has that at all, was spotted last week interviewing with Wolves president and part owner Flip Saunders and is firmly in the mix for the post after the collapse of Minnesota's talks with Memphis Grizzlies coach Dave Yeager. That's it for the NBA tonight. Let's move into the NHL, where Game 6 is Game 7. No, really, that's how the New York Rangers are treating tonight's showdown with the Montreal Canadiens at the Garden. A must-win match in the Eastern Conference Finals with their series lead suddenly unstable at three games to two. A second straight loss would force an imposing winner-take-all Game 7 on Saturday night in Quebec. Thinking of Game 6 as a Game 7 may benefit goalie Hendrik Lundqvist most of all. The Blue Shirts franchise goalie has won an NHL record Five consecutive Game 7s, including two in these playoffs against the Flyers and the Penguins. However, on the flip side, Lundqvist 
is 0-5 since 2009 in non-Game 7 closeout opportunities and has been pulled from his net in four of those five losses, including Game 5 Tuesday night. In the Western Conference Finals, even as Mikel Hanzus was slicing to the net early in double overtime, sending a backhand pass, Jonathan Quick to extend the Chicago Blackhawks season and end a memorable night of playoff hockey as the Chicago Blackhawks stayed alive in the NHL Western Conference Finals with a 5-4 victory over the Los Angeles Kings, forcing Game 7. Scott Burnside and Scott Powers break down the Blackhawks' big win over the Kings in Game 5. I want to ask you, what was more surprising? that Patrick Kane had four assists in a double overtime 5-4 victory that kept the Blackhawks season alive, or that Michael Hanzus scored the winner. Uh, not, no offense against Michael Hanzus. Didn't play much, uh, but came up with uh, the biggest goal he's had in, in, in a long, long time. Yeah, I, I tend to say the latter as well. Um, yeah, he, he somehow found himself wide open, middle of the ice. Uh, the Kings kind of converged on Brandon's side, and Hanzus came up and scored, you know. He's, he's he's gone through some struggles throughout the playoffs after being kind of a reliable guy last season. And, um, you know, his numbers have just, he hasn't played well. And he admitted it today, but he, he came through when it mattered most. Um, a fascinating game, really, on many levels. Uh, the uh, Hawks, of course, uh, jumping up to a 2 nothing lead and then a 3-1 lead, uh, but gave up three straight goals to fall behind. Um, were you surprised that the, the Blackhawks were able to find that the, that reserve, that they were able to come back? Because the Kings are a team that, as we've seen, keep pushing and pushing. When they find the pressure point, they don't let up. Did you think that it was going to be over when the Hawks took that 4-3 lead? I think a lot of people did. It's, uh, uh, you know, you, you've seen the Kings kind of give that push, and then the Blackhawks have crumbled for much of the series where the Kings have overcome a deficit on themselves, but the Blackhawks haven't been able to do it. So um, I thought Crawford was a big key after that second period and gave up that fourth goal and bounced back and didn't allow another one in. All right, does this mean anything or just a long trip uh, across the country for players and scribes alike to, to see the, the series and the season end for the Blackhawks Friday night in Los Angeles? Or are we coming back here for Game 7? I don't. It, I'm not a big believer in momentum. I, I think both teams have an equal shot to win the next game, but the Blackhawks have to feel a little bit better about their play than um, having lost those last three. Scott Burnside and Scott Powers breaking down the Blackhawks, and this was a building block play on now what stands as the most important goal of the Blackhawks' spring, one that sends the two teams back across the country to Los Angeles for Game Six on Friday night, and in just a few minutes. It will be the New York Rangers fighting it out against the Montreal Canadiens in New York City. Finally, on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show, Kurt Busch's impressive sixth-place finish in the 98th Indianapolis 500 earned the 2004 NASCAR Sprint Cup Series champion the prestigious Sunoco Indianapolis 500 Rookie of the Year Award at Monday night's Victory Awards celebration at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Bush is the first NASCAR driver to win the Indianapolis 500 Rookie of the Year Award since Donnie Allison finished fourth and earned the award in the 1970 Indy 500. Two other drivers who won the Indy 500 Rookie of the Year Award before moving over to NASCAR were Tim Richmond in 1980 and Tony Stewart in 1996. Bush said, after the Indy race, you have to be physically ready 
to run the 500 miles in an Indy car. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the toughest part there. When you're running 150 laps into the race, you now have to trim your car as much as you can, not to scrub speed. And you're talking to the four tires, just like I would talk to my four tires here on the cup car. And it's harder to, to get the feel out of that car late in the race with the track greased up and the cars up in front of you. It's almost like you're running against an invisible competitor, and that's the dirty air. So to come away with almost the top five, those top five guys are, are for real up there. And I'm, I'm really happy in Andretti Car 1 with Ryan Hunter Ray. And my first experience, I, I can't ask for anything more. Bush received a check for just under $425,000, which included a $25,000 bonus from Sunoco. He was part of a five-car effort at Andretti Autosport that included Indy 500 winner Ryan Hunter Ray. Bush started 12th and dropped to his lowest 20th place, but fought his way through the field to finish in sixth place. That's going to do it for tonight's show, everyone. Thanks for joining us here this evening. My thanks to Greg Mitchell for producing tonight's show, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening. Don't forget, Monday night, Mark Donahue and I will be back with the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show, where we talk about the Cleveland Indians and the Cincinnati Reds. And believe me, the Indians better get off the schneid this weekend against the Colorado Rockies, because after their three-game set with the Chicago White Sox this past week, they need to pick up some wins and pick up some wins very very quickly. That's going to be Mark Donahue and I Monday night here at UltimateSportsTalk.com with the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show at 9 o'clock, the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show. That, of course, tells us that it's time to go. Again, our thanks to Greg Mitchell for being our producer, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening. Enjoy the Spurs and the Thunder tonight in about an hour and the Rangers and the Canadians in just a few minutes. I'll talk to you again Monday night and again next Thursday night at 7 o'clock with another Ultimate Sports Talk show. Until then, have a good weekend, everybody. I'm Dave Mitchell. Good night.